For this episode, a note. Like the Battle of Chancellorsville, the movements and attacks at Spotsylvania Courthouse will be better envisioned and understood by making use of the maps we provide. It was May 1864, and U.S. Grant's overland campaign was underway. After two days of violence in the wilderness and a swing to the southeast, weary men from the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac found themselves eyeball to eyeball yet again. The fighting to come? Savage, up close, personal, hand to hand. The consequences? Bloody even ghastly. This is the story of the most vicious episode of sustained combat ever to occur on the North American continent. This is the story of Spotsylvania Courthouse. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was in the midst of the tangled Virginia wilderness that Lieutenant General U.S. Grant and General Robert E. Lee first faced one another. In the May 5th and 6th, 1864 affair, losses had been significant. Officially, Union casualties were 17,666, but those numbers were falsified to ease a war-weary North. However, it is safe to estimate that Grant lost 17% of his fighting force. Lee's losses were between 7,750 and 11,000 anywhere between 13 to 18 percent. In that first bloodletting between the two titans, Grant may well have underestimated the aggressiveness of his opponent. And conversely, Lee was certainly surprised by Grant's tenacity and bulldoggedness. Yes, the Union lieutenant general was a determined warrior, but he needed to be for before, during, and after his first fight in the Eastern Theater, he had concerns. First, an awkward command structure. Major General Ambrose E. Burnside and his 9th Infantry Corps were outside Major General George Gordon Meade's Army of the Potomac Administrative Network. Another reservation— with his overland campaign now south of the Rapidan River, Grant realized he had logistical problems. Then, there was, in his opinion, gross misuse of cavalry. He had to find a way for the Army of the Potomac to pull all its pieces together, to attack with coordination, with cooperation. And another command concern, leadership. After the Battle of the Wilderness, Grant was disappointed with Meade, who seemed unable to push, to prod his army. So from here on, the general-in-chief realized his orders would have to be more specific, more direct. And U.S. Grant was not the only Union officer with concerns. From Meade's perspective, Grant had demonstrated an irritating propensity for attacking without proper reconnaissance and preparation. And to further muddy the command waters, Grant questioned not only Meade, but several of the Army of the Potomac's Corps commanders, namely 5th Corps Commander Governor Warren, the 2nd's Winfield Scott Hancock, and John Sedgwick, who led the 6th Corps. Grant thought each had been either subpar or a downright failure in the fight in the wilderness. Warren had been stubborn and cautious, but given the gnarled terrain in which the battle had been fought, some of his hesitancy may have indeed been justified. Yet, in the eyes of superiors, his stock was down. Though Grant believed Hancock never pulled together a united front, he still held the confidence of his superiors. Sedgwick had been, for the most part, not a factor. 
and asked to Ambrose Burnside, who operated an independent command, Grant felt he, too, had been essentially a failure. Grant certainly appreciated his earlier service defending Knoxville, Tennessee, but that previous high regard for Burnside evaporated in the wilderness. Things were not rosy across the way, either. Lee, who was surprised by his opposite's combativeness, was concerned with other elements in Grant's strategic plan. Major General Benjamin Butler and his Army of the James was operating just south of the James River. And Major General Franz Siegel's force was currently active in the Shenandoah Valley. Then there was the stark reality of arithmetic. Now, in the second week of May, 1864, Lee had some 54,000 effectives. Grant, some 100,000. Yet, despite the disparity, the Army of Northern Virginia did have the upper hand in Elan, in morale. Then, like Grant, Lee had command issues as well. With the May 6th accidental wounding of his first corps commander, James Longstreet, who would take that role? To replace his old war horse, Lee chose 42-year-old South Carolinian Major General Richard H. Anderson. Then, following the chain of command, Anderson's division, which was in A.P. Hill's Third Corps, was given to Virginian Brigadier General William Mahone. As to Lee's corps commanders at the Battle of the Wilderness, Richard Ewell, who led the second, had been brilliant on defense, but hesitant on offense. A.P. Hill, who again commanded the Third Corps, had been masterful on the first day of battle, but the next perhaps because he was ill, careless. Indeed, on the 8th of May, the day after the wilderness fight, for the second time in the last two days, Hill was so sick that Lee gave his corps to Major General Jubal Early. And to command Early's division in the Confederacy 2nd Corps, a rising star, Major General John B. Gordon. So, as fog, smoke, and the stench of burned and decaying flesh overwhelmed the wilderness battlefield, both Lee and Grant had much to reckon with as their two armies began what would be a deadly waltz of continuous battle. Back on Saturday morning, the 7th, common soldiers correctly guessed their generals would not renew any major fighting where they had struggled for the last two days. Instead, maneuvering. Lee believed Grant would move eastward, or, like all before, fall back to the north. Grant cleared that up at 6.30 a.m. that Saturday morning when he gave Meade an order to make all preparations during the day for a night march. The direction? To the southeast. As we just mentioned, it was an order and direction that had never been given before in the Eastern Theater. Neither Irvin McDowell, George McClellan, John Pope, or for that matter, George Meade had ever issued such an order just after a bloody encounter. Grant wanted the Army of the Potomac to move some 12 miles and occupy a strategic site on the way to Richmond, a place called Spotsylvania Courthouse. By getting there first, Grant would force Lee to evacuate his strong defensive line that stretched through the wilderness would threaten Lee's supply line and the Confederate capital, Richmond, itself. And so, Grant ordered Warren's V Corps to march south on the Brock Road. Hancock and his II Corps would follow Warren down the same road. Sedgwick's VI Corps was to march to Chancellorsville, then turn south, and Burnside's Ninth was to follow beginning the next morning, the 8th. To assist the infantry's march, Union cavalry moved the night before to clear all roads of any interference. When Lee learned that Union cavalry was on the move to the southeast, he anticipated Grant's objective would be Spotsylvania Courthouse. Reports of Union artillery moving in the same direction convinced him. It was now a race. Which army would get there first? Earlier, anticipating that possibility, Lee had ordered for a military road to be cut that would give access to Catharpin Road, which would enhance Confederate opportunity to get to Spotsylvania Courthouse first. 
Now, certain of Grant's destination, he ordered Anderson's 1st Corps to take two divisions and, by way of that military road, make a night march of 11 miles. Meanwhile, across the way, Grant personally joined the vanguard of Warren's column. Under the cover of night, they moved in dust and smoke. Marching men heard a call. Give way to the right. They complied. Even in the darkness, they understood why, for they made out Grant's form. Shuffling soldiers in blue wondered whether they would head east or, like every time before, north. When it became clear that the Army of the Potomac was headed south, not retreating, cheers went up to the heavens. They would be given a chance to fight, to finish the thing. The roar that rolled down the line was one never forgotten. The cheers continued even though officers tried to silence the men so as not to reveal their movement. Yet the Confederates heard it and wondered what it meant. Anticipating this Union move, remember that Lee had ordered Anderson to move south via the cut military road, to pull quietly out of the line, and once in the rear, allow his men to get some rest, then have them back on the road at 3 a.m. of the 8th. Around 10 p.m. of the 7th, Anderson had his men moving and was in search of a place to rest. But the smoke and the foul smell of death were so great that Anderson made the on-the-spot decision to keep his column moving until, as he put it, I got clear of the fires. That decision to leave five hours earlier than Lee ordered ranks among the most fateful of the campaign. Meanwhile, Union cavalry was on the move. A division of Philip Sheridan's mounted element under Brigadier General Wesley Merritt was in the process of pursuing Brigadier General Fitz Lee's Confederate cavalry. In trying to clear the brock load of Confederate troops, pursuit turned into battle about a mile south of a site called Todd's Tavern. They skirmished from 4 p.m. of the 7th until dark. When night ended the affair, Sheridan, for some reason, gave orders to abandon what road they had cleared and return north to Todd's Tavern for the night. That decision created problems. Their mounted presence slowed ambulance wagons, and in the dark, exhausted soldiers without staff officers to guide them constantly created one traffic jam after another. When Meade finally arrived at Todd's Tavern just after midnight, he discovered Sheridan's cavalry encamped. Livid, he ordered them back on the road to clear the way to Spotsylvania Courthouse. And so, as the race continued in the dead of night of the 7th-8th, Confederate cavalrymen under Major General Fitzhugh Lee prepared for the inevitable Union advance by throwing up log barricades across the Brock Road. Running into them at first light, Merritt's cavalry attacked but were thrown back. At 7 a.m. of May the 8th, Meade, aware of Merritt's lack of success, ordered Warren's 5th Infantry Corps to clear the way. Feeling the weight of infantry, Fitz Lee's men retired about a mile south, where the Brock Road split. Located there, two sites— the Alsop Farm, and the northern end of the Spindle Farm. That's where Fitz Lee's cavalry dug in. As his men continued their delaying tactics, Anderson's First Corps was also headed south, but on a parallel road. Near sunrise, they were not far away, bivouacked near Blockhouse Bridge on the Poe River. As they breakfasted, messengers from Fitz Lee dashed in requesting aid, and Anderson sent two brigades. The route conveniently brought them in from the back of a ridge where Confederate cavalry had made their stand. Jeb Stewart was on the scene and waved Anderson's infantry into place at a site-tabbed Laurel Hill. According to witnesses, as infantry and butternut and gray filed into place, Warren's 5th Corps was no more than 100 yards away. Fitz Lee's five hours of delaying tactics and Anderson's timely arrival saved the Confederate day. They had won the race, despite the facts that Union forces had shorter routes, 
better roads, and a head start. And then, for those in blue, it got worse. Warren, thinking he only faced cavalry, thundered, Never mind, cannon. Never mind, bullets. Press on and clear this road. Then, giving real motivation, he shouted, It's the only way to get to your rations. Despite his banter, each federal attack thrown in piecemeal was turned back, and by noon, Warren gave up any idea of taking Laurel Hill by storm. Meanwhile, there was some real Confederate cause for concern when Brigadier General James H. Wilson's Federal Cavalry Division, using a more easterly route, actually entered Spotsylvania Courthouse around 8 a.m. of May the 8th. Instantly, he realized he could sweep north and fall on the rear of Confederates on Laurel Hill. But Anderson, on top of his game in his first battle as a Corps commander, was informed of the crisis and ordered Confederate infantry above and below Spotsylvania to confront Wilson's men. Then, one of those moments in the heat of battle or in the middle of a campaign that has lasting significance. A Union courier on lathered horse pulled up in front of Wilson with orders from Meade. Wilson was to retire from Spotsylvania and return up the same road that he rode in on. The order intensified a simmering feud between Sheridan and Meade. For Meade, the night of May 7th, 8th, and now the day of the 8th, had been one misstep after another. The man well known for his temper and known by his men as the old goggle-eyed snapping turtle, was furious with Sheridan's cavalry performance. And when an equally angry Sheridan stalked into Meade's tent, the two went toe-to-toe. The language from both was, as one put it, highly spiced and conspicuously italicized with expletives. Furious Sheridan spat that since Meade gave his men orders without consulting him, Meade might as well assume command. In fact, little Phil added that he wouldn't issue another order. Sheridan ended the confrontation, vowing he could whip Jeb Stewart if only Meade would let him. After the heated encounter, Meade walked out of his tent, found Grant, related the incident, and included the part about whipping Stewart. Meade may have not expected the response. Grant said, Did Sheridan say that? Well, he generally knows what he's talking about. Let him start right out and do it. And so, at 1 p.m. of May the 8th, Meade issued orders to do just that. That decision would prove to be a bad one for Union fortune. No eyes and ears. That same day, there was armed confrontation at Laurel Hill. Sedgwick's 6th Union Corps, five hours late, finally arrived and extended Warren's left to the east. Finally linked, the 5th and 6th Corps on Meade's orders attacked around 6.30 to 7 o'clock p.m. and found a nasty surprise. Ewell's 17,000-man 2nd Corps, which left the wilderness early that morning, had arrived in time to extend Anderson's right. Dug in, the two Confederate Corps mauled two Union attacks. Successful because Lee's men were becoming quite proficient in the building of breastworks. Fence rails were torn down, piled up, earth then thrown over them. Thick branches and tree limbs were placed in front, facing the enemy. 19th century barbed wire, if you will. As night fell, snipers and digging in kept both armies busy. In other words, neither army got much rest the night of May 8th, 9th. As Monday, May 9th dawned, Confederate sharpshooting increased while more troops arrived on the field. Hancock's 2nd Federal Corps arrived and extended Warren's right. With Sheridan on Meade's orders away south looking for Jeb Stewart, Burnside's 9th Corps also arrived on the developing scene and sidled in to the Union left of Sedgwick. To counter the arrival of Burnside, Lee extended his right with his 3rd Corps still commanded by Jubal Early. By 4 p.m., Lee's line of earthen fortifications ran from near the Po River, 
followed Laurel Hill east across Block Road, then pushed forward to form a horseshoe. A ragged inverted V, which featured high ground just north of two homesteads, the Harrison and McCool places. Federal entrenchments were just across the way and mirrored the Confederate line. Federals noted it was Gettysburg in reverse, for on this field, Lee had the inner lines for supply and reinforcement. Back to the inverted V, the salient. No Confederate liked it, vulnerable from front and sides. But it was elevated ground, and engineers did refuse both flanks to blunt possible attack. They called it the Mule Shoe Salient, and within were the divisions under Major Generals Robert Rhodes and Edward Johnson, both in Ewell's 2nd Corps. Regardless of engineers' efforts to protect flanks, Rhodes and Johnson's men were very uncomfortable. That's why all Confederate soldiers inside the salient furiously began to dig, with cups, with bayonets. They felled trees immediately in the front to clear fields of fire. To delay and confuse any possible attack, they stacked timber with sharpened branches facing the enemy. Breaking up an attack and with a cleared field of fire, they hoped to cut to pieces any attack or drive it to the ground. And to make sure, earthworks were constructed in front of trenches. Headlogs thrown on top with loopholes for firing. And every so often in the Confederate line, barricades, traverses, were extended at right angles from the main works to protect Confederates from flanking fire and give them rallying points if there was a Federal breakthrough. Add sweeping artillery fire, and it is no wonder that the defender could withstand an attacking force some three or four times as great. One Confederate in the Stonewall Brigade, who was in the Mule Shoe salient, wrote, Wonder what General Grant thinks of Master Bob today, for he is right in his way to Richmond. With Lee's line holding the high ground, Southern sharpshooting was particularly harassing. That morning of the 9th, around 9 a.m., John Sedgwick was inspecting his lines near the Brock Road. At the spot where the two branches of that road came together, the 6th Corps commander visited Captain William H. McCartney's 1st Massachusetts Battery. Earlier that morning, Sedgwick's chief of staff warned his commander not to go into that area for already a brigadier general and the color sergeant of the 15th New Jersey had been hit. His chief of staff told him, General, do you see that section of artillery? Well, you are not to go near it today. Good-naturedly, Sedgwick answered him, McMahon, I would like to know who commands this corps, you or I. His staffer playfully jabbed back, Well, General, sometimes I am in doubt myself. Now, within that very spot where he had been warned not to go, bullets began to spatter. Some of the men dodged, and the scene made Sedgwick laugh. What? What? Men dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire along the whole line? I am ashamed of you. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. As those words left his mouth, a bullet whined and a sergeant went down to his hands and knees. The general prodded him gently with the toe of his boot and repeated, What are you dodging at? They couldn't hit an elephant at that distance. The sergeant jumped up, saluted, and said, General, I dodged a shell once, and if I hadn't, it would have taken my head off. I believe in dodging. Sedgwick laughed and said, All right, my man, go to your place. Then there was a dull thud. Sedgwick rotated slowly, and like a small fountain, blood began to spurt from a small hole just below the general's left eye. On his lifeless face... A slight smile. When Grant was informed, twice he asked in disbelief, Is he really dead? Is he really dead? One of the highest ranking officers killed in the American Civil War, the popular Uncle John Sixth Corps was now given to 44-year-old Major General Horatio G. Wright. 
Meanwhile, on this day, the 9th, Sheridan was taking immediate advantage of his newfound freedom. With 10,000 horsemen riding four abreast and with six batteries, his column headed south toward Richmond on the Telegraph Road. His column stretched 13 miles, and aided by the cover of rain, they hit Beaver Dam Station, just north of Richmond, capturing two locomotives, 200,000 pounds of bacon, a million and a half rations, and nearly all of Lee's medical stores. But his absence was already having consequences. Back along the entrenched infantry of both armies, Burnside and his Ninth Corps probed toward the little hamlet that was Spotsylvania Courthouse. Fighting broke out between his men and Fitzhugh Lee's ever-present Confederate cavalry. Now, a series of sketchy reports. First, Burnside reported Confederates in town, and that coincided with a report from Hancock, who was still near Todd's Tavern, that Early's men had disappeared. Grant took the two observations and told Burnside to hold his position while Hancock's Second Corps was to advance onto the Po River, where he was to strike Lee's supposedly weakened western flank. As Hancock moved, and I might add without cavalry recon, without an idea of Confederate strength and with no plan for support, Warren's 2nd Corps and Wright's 6th also waited for an opportunity to strike. By dark, Hancock's men were across the Po River, but had to cross the river a second time to reach the enemy. Without Union cavalry, all with Sheridan, Hancock feared the bridge he would have to use might be too heavily guarded and waited until the next day. That delay was nearly fatal, for under the cover of darkness, Lee, who correctly judged that Burnside was no threat, moved two divisions of Early's Third Corps. They raced to a point where they could not only receive an attack by Hancock's Second Corps, but deliver one the next day. In Lee's classic style of generalship, he turned the tables on Grant. The hunted was now the hunter. The stage was set for an active and bloody May the 10th. By 10 a.m. that Tuesday, Grant learned he had misjudged Lee's movements. Lee was not shifting east, but believed the troops that confronted Hancock at the Po came from Laurel Hill. That was incorrect, too. But no matter, Grant wanted Hancock to leave one division to pin Early's men in place and at 5 p.m. throw a coordinated attack at Laurel Hill. Grant firmly believed an attack across his front would find a Confederate soft spot. Hancock withdrew, but Brigadier General Francis Barlow's division, the one left behind, caught hell from Confederates under Early. The Battle of the Po, as it was called, was a sharp little affair. Hancock praised Barlow for his efficient withdrawal north of the Po, and Early gave kudos to a division under Major General Harry Heath, which protected Lee's left. Meanwhile, Grant continued to plan his strike on Laurel Hill for 5 p.m., but began to unravel as early as 2. While Hancock was away assisting Barlow's withdrawal, Governor Warren on Laurel Hill was the ranking officer and for reasons still left unexplained, requested and received permission from Meade to attack the Confederate line at Laurel Hill earlier than planned. It, an isolated assault, went off at 4 p.m. an hour earlier and included elements of both the 2nd and 6th Federal Corps. As they went forward, one Ohioan noticed that sandy soil under the trees appeared to be moving. As he drew nearer, he saw why. As he put it, it was Confederate bullets which whipped the sand like a switch. As for the attack, one observer succinctly summed it up. Some advanced to the abatis, others halted part way, but speedily the whole line fell back with terrible losses. Grant now had no choice but to delay his overall 5 p.m. attack for one hour. He announced the change at 3.45 p.m., but no one bothered to inform Brigadier General Gershom Mott and elements of his 4th Division, which was to support the main Union assault. Following his original orders, 
His some 1,500 men went forward at 5 o'clock alone. They had no chance. Despite that disaster, Grant's main assault came at 6 and was led by Colonel Emery Upton. The 24-year-old was a May 1861 graduate from West Point. He was an abolitionist from upstate New York. Described as arrogant, full of self-importance, and intense about soldiering, his men were to employ a tactic he believed would breach the Confederate line. Twelve hand-picked regiments, 5,000 men in a compacted, elongated formation would hit a much narrower front than usual. The attack by men from Maine, New York, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Vermont. At first, they would be protected by thick pine woods, but after clearing them, they would have some 200 exposed yards to hit their target, the mule shoe's left leg about halfway up. Hastily planned, instructions were for the men to form four deep lines, three regiments side by side. They would go in, holding their fire until they reached a Confederate position held by Georgians under Brigadier General George P. Doles. After breaching, men were to spread left and right, widening the gap, and remaining units were to exploit gains. At 6 p.m., Federal batteries opened. At 6.35, Upton's men sprinted forward. At first, it went like clockwork. A blue tidal wave. One Confederate volley, then another slowed them, but on they came. Gaps appeared, but still they clawed through the abatis and went over the earthworks. The Georgians were virtually annihilated. Doles was captured, the fighting hand-to-hand. 21-year-old Thomas J. Dingler defiantly waved the flag of the 44th Georgia overhead. He was bayoneted 14 times. Another Confederate defender was stabbed through his eyes. Though the Confederate line was breached, no Union support followed up. Remember, Gershom Mott's men, who would have supported, never got the change in attack time and went in an hour earlier. But the Confederate Second Corps did have support. Upton's tactics did not reckon with Richard Ewell's Second Corps. An excited Ewell and calm Lee seemed to be everywhere. Brigadier General Stephen Dodson Ramsour and Junius Daniels' North Carolina Brigades rallied. So did James Walker's Stonewall Brigade. Brigadier General George Stewart's Alabama Brigade under Brigadier General Cullen Battle. Colonel Clement Evans' Georgians and Brigadier General Robert D. Johnston's North Carolina Brigade. When Johnston's Tar Heels went in, there appeared a lone officer astride his mount in the middle of the chaos. It was Lee. As he arrived, a Union shell plowed some 15 feet away. A bullet ricocheted off his saddle, and the air hissed lead. But there he was, just like four days ago at the wilderness, amidst the fighting. Johnston's North Carolinians formed alongside him. As they did, Lee rose in his saddle and pointed toward the rupture in the earthworks. It appeared he was going to personally lead them forward. Johnston's men promised they would reclaim the works, but only if Lee went to the rear. He nodded and turned his horse as they poured into the thick of the fighting. Without support, by 7.30, Upton's attack was spent. The breach was sealed and men in blue raced back to their lines. Upton had suffered some 1,000 casualties, but brought back some 950 Confederate prisoners. In total, Lee lost around 12 to 1,300 men. Fingers, of course, were pointed, and quite unfairly, Gershom Mott was blamed for lack of support. Informed of the reversal, Grant was disappointed, but also encouraged by the unique tactical innovation that Upton brought to the table, a quick, compacted advance without pausing to fire and reload. Grant promoted Upton to Brigadier General the very next day and mused, a brigade today will try a corps tomorrow.
Within the Confederate lines, Lee feared a repeat of Upton's tactics on a grander scale, and at about 8.15 that night sent Ewell orders to strengthen his lines within the mule shoe. The night of the 10th was a sad one, and as always during the Civil War, music tried to provide solace. That evening, a Confederate band gathered near the works and played Nearer My God to Thee. Their music was answered by a Union band which played the Dead March. That prompted the Confederate band to answer with the Bonnie Blue flag and upon its conclusion a chorus of rebel yells. Not to be outdone, the musicians in blue countered with a star-spangled banner and cheers. Then the Confederate band played one last song. It was Home Sweet Home and the air was literally rent with cheers from both armies. It was a moment that for those who were there, those who heard, never forgot. In hindsight, the events of the 10th once again show that Grant had bungled. With little reconnaissance and coordination, he had ordered men into combat. His greatest mistake that May 10th may have been not using Burnside and his Ninth Corps against Lee's vulnerable right. That Tuesday was his bloodiest day since leaving the wilderness. In total, he lost about 4,100 after some 9,000 each day back on the 5th and 6th of the month of May. However, encouraged by Upton's near success, he did, the next day, send a message to Halleck back in Washington City. It read, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Lee, in contrast, had been brilliant with the possible exception that he exposed himself, but no question, his personal presence was worth a brigade or more given the crises. On Wednesday morning, May the 11th, Grant developed his plans. By 3 p.m., his orders were sent to Meade. They were quite explicit, and as such, Meade resented the heavy-handedness in detail. The massive assault would be spearheaded by Hancock's 2nd Corps, and its staging area would be around a homestead known as the Brown House. From there, the 2nd Corps was to attack the very tip of the Confederate salient. Scheduled for 4 a.m., the assault would be made before daylight, Thursday the 12th. Simultaneously, Burnside's Ninth Corps was to hit the salient's eastern leg, while Warren and Wright's two corps were to pin Confederates at Laurel Hill. Then, as the day of the 11th progressed, Lee received intelligence that Grant might be retiring toward Fredericksburg. If that happened... Lee wanted to pursue the Union forces and was concerned that his artillery and the mule shoe salient might have difficulty pulling out. Therefore, he gave orders to withdraw the guns from exactly where Grant planned his main assault. Then, Mother Nature had her say. That Wednesday afternoon, the heavens opened, the wind raw, cutting. Despite the weather, at 7 p.m., Hancock met with three of his division commanders, Francis Barlow, David Burney, and John Gibbon. Two hours later, they were ready to move to the staging area. Their three-mile route, a dismal one over fields, through forest, streams, and swamp. All made worse, for every step was made in heavy rain. Once again, Grant's attack was ordered without complete knowledge of the terrain, not certain of the location where the Confederates were from the staging area, and orientation of the southern line. Engineers who guided Hancock's men were vocal about having to conduct such an important movement without intel about the enemy's position or strength. This did little to reassure officers who would soon lead some 20,000 men. The weather and lack of recon got the best of Barlow. Not certain what direction they were to face upon arrival at the Brown House, it was an extremely frustrated division commander who bit into staffer Charles Morgan. For heaven's sake! At least face us in the right direction so that we shall not march away from the enemy and have to go round the world and come up in their rear. 
At about 12.30 a.m., Barlow's men arrived at the spongy fields around the brown house. Inside that home, a sick Confederate soldier and his wife, their three small children, a cook, and her three children. Bernie's division got there at the staging area about 2 a.m. For him, it speaks volumes of his concern for the success of this attack when he, believing it would be his last, gave his valuables to a friend. Taking their cue from Upton's compacted attack two days earlier, his division stacked themselves tightly into two lines. Bernie's division was on Barlow's right. Mott and Gibbons were just behind. In essence, one great blue sledgehammer. Across the way, in the rain and darkness, Confederate pickets could only hear a subdued roar or noise, plainly audible in the still, heavy night air, like distant falling water or machinery. Yet, they were uncertain if the commotion meant attack or retreat. By midnight, Edward Allegheny Johnson, whose Confederate division occupied the very tip of the salient, believed something was up, and it wasn't good. He sent word to Ewell that the 22 guns that had been earlier moved to be sent back. So convincing was his argument that Ewell agreed and ordered the guns returned. However, that order was delayed and failed to reach the artillerist until 3.30 a.m. At 4, attack time, it was still quite dark. The men, standing in compact formations, waited another half hour, surrounded by the silence of the night, by distance and darkness and fog, all the while listening to raindrops drip from leaf to leaf. Colonel Charles H. Wagant of the 124th New York was one who was waiting in the cold chill of that early morning. Biting his own tongue to stay awake, he felt a hand on his shoulder. It was Brigadier General John H. H. Ward who told him, Colonel, you have been assigned a post of honor. I expect you to take your regiment over the works this time or die in the attempt. Ironic, for Ward was one of many Federals that morning who believed the attack would fail. By now, it was 4.35 a.m., and though the rain had stopped, it was replaced by a swirling, clinging mist. Then came the word, Forward! Some 20,000 men in a solid blue rectangular mass lurched forward. Many tore through thick underbrush and freed themselves from waist-deep swamp-like mire. When they broke clear of the woods, they still had some 200 yards to cover. Fifty ranks deep, they pushed into a field which sloped away to a shallow ravine. Then, with essentially all order gone, they, like an avalanche, swept over Confederate picket lines and stormed up the slope. It was only then... Through the gray mist, they saw the ugly, red-scarred earth of the Confederate line. No one, Grant, Lee, Ewell, Hancock, common soldiers on either side, had any idea of the protracted, violent inhumanity that was about to begin. Indeed, nothing on this continent like it before or since. For the Confederates in their earthworks, the ground in front of them was washed out by haze. But they heard a noise that reminded them of a roaring sea. Then, suddenly, a blue wave crested a small ridge in front of them. Federals went from carrying their muskets at right shoulder shift to charge. They broke into a run and soon began to claw their way through the abattis. Aware they were under attack, Confederates up and down the line pulled triggers, but far too often the sound was nothing more than pop, pop, pop. Misfires due to the wet conditions. So many misfires that Union soldiers not only pushed their way through the abattis, but began to dismantle it. The Union mass made the Confederate red scar ditch, and then that blue tsunami suddenly, irresistibly poured over and into the Confederate works. 
Barlow's men washed over Johnson's Confederates. Bernie's men crashed into that portion of the mule shoe manned by William Monahan's Louisianans and Jim Walker's Stonewall Brigade. And so began the most vicious bout of sustained combat ever to occur on this continent. Within minutes, the blunt end of the mule shoe salient was obliterated. 32 stands of Confederate colors were captured, 20 guns, 3,000 men, and one half mile of Lee's line. Both Allegheny Johnson and George Stewart were captured. Fired or wet muskets were now used as clubs. In the wild, wet, and savage melee, there were bayonet and sword thrust, pistols fired point-blank. Around 5.30, another blue attack struck the western part of the salient. For southern soldiers, the crisis was extreme. Union batteries added to their woe when guns loaded with double charges of canister were brought up and fired at point-blank range. Hancock had overwhelmed the Stonewall Brigade, now threatened Junius Daniels' North Carolina Brigade and units of Clement Evans' Georgians. His second corps had torn a gaping hole in the Confederate line, but incredibly, no one had planned the next step. Thousands upon thousands of Union soldiers were jammed through an opening no wider than one-half to three-quarters of a mile, but what next? Faced with disaster, Lee's subordinates reacted. Ewell was beside himself. He berated, browbeat, swore so much that Lee, who had ridden into the chaos, addressed him. How can you expect to control these men when you have lost control of yourself? If you cannot repress your excitement, you had better retire. What was needed was a calmer head, and it was one of Ewell's lieutenants, John Gordon, and he was nothing short of remarkable. He held a reserve line, and even though some Federals had slipped around his line, he ordered Johnston's brigade of North Carolinians into the Confederate collapse on the eastern salient. As they moved forward in the fog and rain, Johnston fell wounded. But under Gordon's leadership, the brigade formed a line to plug one gap. Those Tar Heels stymied the Union breakthrough on the eastern face of the salient. But Gordon was not done. He now gathered a brigade of Virginians under Colonel John S. Hoffman and a portion of Evans' Georgians. As he did so, a familiar figure watched, again exposed. It was Lee. An eyewitness remembered. Not a word did he say, but simply took off his hat, and as he said on his charger, I never saw a man look so noble. For the third time in the last six days, the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, gave every impression he was going to lead men into battle. It was Gordon who insisted, You must go to the rear. And the men picked up the chant, Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear. Finally, he did as they asked, and Gordon and his thrown-together force poured into the fighting where Hancock's masses were, as one put it, packed as thick as blackbirds in our trenches. The weight of the Confederate counterattack was such that after about 30 minutes of fighting, the eastern salient was back in Confederate control. But it was the western salient that now needed attention. Major General Robert F. Rhodes and one of his brigades, North Carolinians under Brigadier General Stephen D. Ramsour, plowed into that sector. Early on, Ramsour was hit in the right arm but refused to go to the rear. Wounded, he led his men traverse by traverse as they battled their way to unite with Gordon on the eastern salient. In the middle of the ongoing carnage, one member of Ramsour's brigade, Tisdale Stepp of the 14th North Carolina, began to sing the Bonnie Blue Flag. Others joined in. Cruelly, in all the confusion, one of his own men accidentally shot him in the back of the head. And in the spreading universe of battle that was that day, this was not the only place where desperate men and desperate fighting was going on. Far down the eastern salient, Major General James H. Lane and his North Carolina Brigade threw back elements of Burnside's Ninth Corps who had joined the attack. 
By 5.55 a.m., the counterattacks of Gordon, Ramsour, and Lane forced Hancock to ask for assistance from Wright's 6th Corps. By 6 a.m., the federal offensive, so successful at its start, was stalled. Grant's response? Send in more troops. Wright was ordered in at 6.30. Burnside was to attack again at 7. At that time, some two and a half hours after the fight began, the battle was still in the balance. Before the Confederates, help was on the way. After a four-mile forced march, Brigadier General Abner Perrin's Alabama Brigade and Brigadier General Nathaniel H. Harris's Mississippians raced toward the fighting. Perrin was heard to vow, I shall come out of this fight a live major general or a dead brigadier. As Harris's men came forward there a third time this day was Lee. The Mississippian Harris rode up to Lee and asked him to return to the rear as his men from the Magnolia State drove in between Gordon and Perrin's men. As they did, one Mississippian recalled the scene. The breastworks were slippery with blood and rain, dead bodies lying underneath half trampled out of sight. As one might expect, more casualties occurred as the fighting intensified. The Stonewall Brigade's commanding officer, Jim Walker, was wounded. Junius Daniel went down with a mortal wound. And the man who made his vow to be a live major general or dead brigadier, Abner Perrin, he was cut down by seven bullets. At 8 a.m., Grant ordered Brigadier General Thomas H. O'Neill's 6th Corps Division into a portion of the Confederate line where the blunt end of the mule shoe curved south. Known as the West Angle, what transpired there would bring the fighting to a new level of hell, the area forever known as the Bloody Angle. And to this spot, in the next hour, two more Union brigades arrived, one from Vermont under Colonel Lewis A. Grant. So many men were pressed into this one area that a Union general spat, For God's sake, Hancock, do not send any more troops in here. Still responding to yet another crisis, Lee answered with more reinforcements, South Carolinians under Brigadier General Samuel McGowan. Almost as soon as they reached the fight, McGowan went down, as did his senior officer. The fighting was done by men pressed literally against breastworks on each side. Rifles were hoisted over the top with stocks raised and fired point-blank down into the faces of men on the other side. Occasionally, one jumped to the top of the works and fired one loaded rifle after another until he was shot down, only to have another take his place. Men stabbed with bayonets between logs of the breastworks. Helplessly wounded and corpses were stamped into the mud. Some riddled with bullets until they were no longer recognized as human. So relentless was the slaughter that men collapsed from exhaustion on top of corpses, only to jolt awake and start killing again. Occasionally, while the fight raged, ditches were cleared of corpses so men could literally stand to fight. Meanwhile, artillery was run up and single and double blasts of canister splintered wood and bodies. Some literally fell apart. Near the flag of the 16th Mississippi, a mortar shell blew apart one Mississippian and decapitated another. Wedged upright, his headless body spouted blood like a fountain. The amount of lead in the air toppled trees. All around, an unmitigated slaughter, a Golgotha of horror, a seething, bubbling, roaring cauldron of hate and murder. And more arrived. Around 9.30, Brigadier General David A. Russell's 6th Corps Division joined the inhumanity. Their Corps Commander, Horatio Wright, passively monitored his Corps' progress from a sheltered hollow near the West Angle. By about 10 that morning, the 2nd and 6th Corps were spent, so Grant ordered Warren's 5th Corps to attack elsewhere, to the west of Laurel Hill. Warren had been ordered to attack earlier at 7.30 a.m., and tentatively did go forward at 8.15. It was their 4th or 5th attack in the last few days, and every man knew what awaited them behind those scarred breastworks. Needless to say, this new order to attack infuriated Warren, 
But seeing no alternative, he told his division commanders, do it. Don't mind the consequences. They stepped off, and their charge was a disaster. One soldier from the Iron Brigade wrote, Gettysburg is a skirmish compared to this fight. By noon, the fighting at the bloody angle was at a grisly equilibrium. Lee, who realized the salient had to be evacuated, was busy constructing a new defensive line back at the Harrison House. But while that was being done, by two that wet and gray afternoon, with the fight still in the balance, both Lee and Grant looked to the east sector where Burnside and Confederate Cadmus Wilcox faced one another. It was there that Lane's North Carolinians and elements of Union Brigadier General Orlando Wilcox's division collided. After one half hour of fighting, yet another stalemate. Shortly after 3 p.m., Wright was ordered to attack with two of Warren's Union divisions, but he botched the development. Finally, around 5.10 p.m., Grant ended all attacks. After 13 ghastly hours of attack after attack, no more offensives were ordered. However, for those still jammed in that muddy hell of the bloody angle, the point-blank shooting, stabbing, and slashing continued. Darkness brought some respite, but even after midnight, the firing of rifled muskets continued. Around 3 a.m., Friday, May the 13th, after 20 hours of combat, word was quietly passed along the Confederate line to fall back. They slipped away virtually unopposed, back to a new defensive line at the Harrison House. They fell back from ditches filled with dead, often packed in gooey mud. Some of the wounded had to be pulled from their entrapment under the stacked dead. One Mississippian said simply, I don't expect to go to hell, but if I do, I am sure that hell can't beat this terrible scene. One Union soldier used the cover of night to search for a friend. He found him and noted, There was not four inches of space about his person that had not been struck by bullets. At 5.30 in the morning on Friday the 13th, Meade learned that Wright held and controlled only that segment of the mule shoe salient known as the Bloody Angle. There was more rain that day, and it served as a haunting backdrop for the horror that the gray day gave light to. In a 12 by 15 foot space of the Bloody Angle, 150 bodies were found. It was not uncommon to find 8 to 10 bodies stacked in a rifle pit like cordwood. Bodies were found that were described as chopped to hash or piles of jelly. One Union soldier was found with 11 bullet holes through his shoe alone. A section of Union guns less than 100 yards away was noted. Every horse was bridled and dead. Their drivers still in saddles, dead. Gunners on ammo boxes sitting back to back and erect dead. A Union officer had to touch them to persuade himself they were not alive. Trees were stripped of their vegetation, mutilated. In fact, one 20 inches in diameter was felled by bullet fire alone. And if more evidence was needed to reinforce the horror of those 20 hours, the discovery of two bullets in the leaden sheets of musket fire they had met in flight and fused. The two armies lingered amidst the gore. As one soldier so numb by what he saw put it, I will seal this in my memory by myself. Over the next few days, the two armies sparred. Undaunted, Grant prepared yet another move. The axis of the two armies began again, to swing from north to south, and that would mean there would be more killing. For Lee at Spotsylvania Courthouse, 3,000 of his men had been captured, four to 5,000 killed and wounded. He had been brilliant in the use of a smaller army to stop a larger one. He had supervised from the front. There, though exposed, 
He had been inspirational. Yes, at first, he did misread Grant's intent after the Battle of the Wilderness, and later gave credence to intelligence that reported that Burnside was moving toward Fredericksburg. That miscalculation led to his decision to pull artillery from the very spot Grant hit. As to his lieutenants, Richard Anderson and Jubal Early had fought well in their new command positions. Ewell, however, had been a disappointment in the heat of battle. That would have future consequences. Though Grant and Meade were not beaten, Lee's men believed they had won a great victory. Their morale, good. They remained confident. Since Grant crossed the Rapidan back on May the 4th, Lee had lost some 23,000 men, 33% of his force. It would be very tough to replace them. The pool of manpower was beginning to run low. And U.S. Grant knew that. One Confederate loss, particularly, grieved Lee, for on the day after the fight at the Mule Shoe, he was informed of a casualty that brought him to the edge of tears. He learned that on the 12th, in Richmond, Jeb Stewart had died of a wound at the hands of Sheridan's cavalry at a site just north of Richmond, a place called Yellow Tavern. Choked with emotion, Lee said, He never brought me a piece of false information. In the aftermath of Spotsylvania Courthouse, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, George Gordon Meade, was by then, in the eyes of Grant, little more than a staff officer. And in return, Meade, who felt pressured, resented his superior. The victor at Gettysburg was stunned by his army's losses, and yet, on the 13th, he had to shake his head in disbelief when Grant recommended him for promotion. Though concerned about his mounting casualties, Meade did share with Grant a certain optimism that ultimate victory would eventually be their reward. For U.S. Grant, after two battles in his overland campaign, he had to reckon with his heavy Union losses. The Army of the Potomac Second Corps crossed the Rapidan back on May the 4th with 27,000 men. Now it was down to 16,000. Warren's Fifth Corps had lost 37% of its men, and about the same for Wright's Sixth. Burnside's Ninth Corps had suffered some 25% casualties. Thus far, in the drive south, Union total losses came to 33,410, 28% of Grant's force. What had the bloodletting in the wilderness in Spotsylvania taught him? First, from here on, he would prefer maneuver rather than frontal attacks. Second, he realized that the Army of the Potomac was far more timid than he imagined. Third, Robert E. Lee was the first who was just as aggressive as he. Grant's men, and even their enemy, noted that Grant's strength was his strategic tenacity, his bull doggedness. However, we must note that his tactics were sloppy, too impulsive, did not gather useful recon, and back on May 12th ordered an attack, but did not plan the next step, what troops should do to exploit breakthrough. Add the questions that arose from that terrible day, where were ranking officers to oversee the attack from the front? And as to his mounted element, Sheridan's men did kill Jeb Stewart. But given permission to leave the infantry, Grant thus denied the Army of the Potomac an important element in intelligence gathering. Assessing the Army of the Potomac's Corps commanders, to Grant, Wright had been lethargic. Hancock suffered to a degree the same malady. Warren was, in his mind, a serious embarrassment, and Burnside seemed overmatched. Yet the man from Galena remained optimistic. Near nightfall of the 13th, and despite the slaughter the day before, he was already thinking of stealing a march on Lee. He would order the 5th and 6th Corps to swing around the 2nd and 9th. Yes, he had been stopped twice, but he was not about to give in or give up.
As he earlier wired Washington City, he would fight it out on this line if it took all summer. And it would. On Monday, May 16th, the rain finally ended. The next day, the sun returned. It was a new day, and Lieutenant General U.S. Grant was determined to maintain the strategic initiative. The Army of the Potomac was on the move, and 25 miles to the south, a stream known as the North Anna. It would be there. The two titans would clash yet again. Next time we gather, the story of an ideology that continues to mold opinions and for some, shape policy. Something born out of a January 1872 speech at then newly named Washington and Lee College. An oration given by former Confederate Lieutenant General Jubal Early, whose eager disciples sought to justify their own Civil War actions allow themselves and other Southerners to find something positive in defeat and provide future generations with, as they put it, a correct narrative of the war. When next we meet, the story of a belief that survives and simmers even to this day, the story of the creation of the lost cause. Some news we'd like to share. Threads from the National Tapestry will soon be available on YouTube. If you have enjoyed the storytelling, please subscribe to our new channel to help us expand our podcast. We will leave a link in the show notes so that you can find the channel easily. Thank you so much for all the positive support. And hopefully, we'll see you soon on YouTube. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.